You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you on this Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate the birth of the church when God's Holy Spirit came down with this violent rushing wind and fire like tongues. And that can, imagine us gathered here in this place during worship and that kind of thing happening and God just showing up in that kind of a way. I don't know if we'd know what to do with ourselves, would we? But that's what happened. That's the birth of the church. Our scripture for this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 38 through 47. It'll appear on the screens. Let's read it. And hear God's word. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came among everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Every October, Suzanne and I have kind of a deal, ever since we got married, that we would make a point of going on vacation somewhere, at least for a short amount of time, regardless of what else might be going on in our lives. And so we kind of look forward and we take turns planning this trip and And we try to find different places that we haven't been before. We don't like to go too far because we don't want to be driving the whole time. So we stay within a few hours of of here. And we try to explore and just see what's there. And we have been to some humdingers of places over the years uh, in doing that. Probably the one that will live in infamy was a trip to Seymour, Missouri. Anybody been to Seymour, Missouri? That's about what I thought. So Suzanne was into these Amish books, right, this whole collections of Amish books, and she's reading about these Amish communities, and so she got online, it was her year to plan the trip, and so she got online, she found in Seymour, Missouri, this Amish bed and breakfast. Sounded great. So we drive for seven hours to Seymour, Missouri, and as we pull up to what is clearly our destination, we drive past the liquor store that's across the street from the Amish bed and breakfast. And we walk into this place, and it's completely empty. There, there is nobody there. Finally, the owner of the place comes out, and she's all excited that we're there visiting, and she shows us their gift shop. <laughs> In the gift shop are some jams and jellies, and I looked at the label, and they're for some place, you know, 30 miles down the road. They're not even jellies that she had made. That was her version of the gift shop. It was 
not remotely Amish in any way, shape, or form, uh, nor was the community where this place even was. Now, I've got bad news for you. It closed in 2013, so we can't ever go back. Sorry. It does not surprise me at all (laughs) that this place closed. Today, we're continuing our series called Where's Grace? And we're looking at the lives of King David that we looked at last week, and then Peter that we'll look at today, and then next week we'll look at the life of Paul. And we're asking the question, where is God's grace in each of their lives? How do we see God's grace working? And then how do we see God's grace working in ours? And so last week we started with King David. King David that was chosen by God from an early age, to be the one that God would anoint to lead this new nation of Israel and establish God's throne here on earth. And from an early age, God was working in David's life to prepare him to lead. And we see him defeating Goliath and then becoming a companion of Saul, who was the king at the time, and he works his way up the ranks. And finally, the people recognize that this is the one that God has chosen rather than Saul that they chose for themselves. And we know from the Gospels that King David points us towards the Messiah, this line that leads through generations from this poor shepherd boy, King David, to the great shepherd, the Messiah. And we also know David, we talked about this last week, for his indiscretion with Bathsheba. And while we learn through this story that sin certainly has its consequences, God's grace never leaves David. God does not abandon David and say, well, you messed up, I'm done with you. Nor does David stop being a man after God's own heart. Today we shift our attention to Peter, and Peter's story is a soap opera of biblical proportions. But we begin in the calling of Peter, which is really interesting. He's out washing his nets after going fishing and catching absolutely nothing. And Jesus gets into his boat and begins teaching the crowds that are gathered there and tells Peter after that, let's go out into deep water and catch some fish. Now, it's one of those stories in Scripture that you read and go, you know, there has to be more to the story that's actually written down because if I'm Peter and what I know about Peter, he's a little outspoken and bold at times, as we'll see here in a minute. I can see him looking at Jesus and going, dude, that's my boat. What are you doing? Stop! Get out of my boat, right? That's kind of who Peter is. But Jesus shows him that with him, things will be different. With Jesus, they will fill their boats with fish. Now, Peter ought to learn something from this illustration. By myself, I catch nothing, but yet with Jesus, I fill my boat with fish. Maybe I have something to learn here, but no, not Peter. But Peter falls down at the feet of Jesus when they catch all these fish, and says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter recognizes his humanness, to which Jesus responds, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. Bear that in mind as we go full circle. Because even in this introduction, Peter recognizes his humanness. And Jesus makes it clear that there is a mission and a purpose for his life anyway. You'll catch people. Peter should have figured out that he also needs a little humility to go along with it, but he hasn't learned that just yet. 
Later on, we see Peter sees Jesus on the water, and he says, I want to be like Jesus. I want to walk on water like you. And so Jesus says, okay, come out of the boat. And so he does. He starts walking. But the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. In the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and they see Moses, and they see Elijah, and Peter says, let me build three dwelling places for you, and let's stay right here. He's already forgotten the mission. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet, Peter says, No, no, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus again has to remind him, Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. I'll lay down my life for you, says Peter. Yeah, hold that thought. There are really three places in Peter's story that we see his complete lack of faith. Jesus tells Peter that he will desert him, that he will deny him. There's no question about that. It's not, hey, Peter, I hope you don't. It's, Peter, you will. Jesus knows who Peter is, but Peter doesn't yet know himself very well. His denial of Christ did not surprise Christ at all. Peter wept bitterly after what he had done. In another place, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And of course, it's Peter who speaks for the group. Well, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're one of the prophets. And you can see Jesus zoning in on young Peter and saying, okay, Peter, who do you say that I am? And again, Peter speaks boldly, well, you're the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Oh, Peter, you're so bold in proclaiming who Jesus is, but yet you will deny him later. Finally, with Christ, we're led to resurrection. And in John's account of the resurrection story, the disciples go back to what they know best. They go fishing. And Jesus meets them there, just as he did when he first called them. And they gather around the fire on the beach, and this same fire that that Peter stood around at Jesus' trial and said, I don't know the man, is now a fire that Jesus uses to remind him of who he is and to restore him into relationship. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Jesus asks him this question because three times Peter said, no, no. Then feed my lambs, feed my sheep. In other words, go and fulfill the mission that I put before you when I called you. Go and fish for people. The risen Christ does not condemn Peter. The risen Christ does not chastise Peter and say, well, here's where you weren't wrong, buddy. The risen Christ restores Peter. And we see that here in the book of Acts this continuation of Luke's gospel. Peter is the one who stands up to address the 120 people gathered in the upper room. Peter is the one on the day of Pentecost that we recognize today, the day on which God's Holy Spirit came down, that this violent wind erupted and flames came down from heaven. Peter is the one who speaks up and says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 are added to their number 
that day. In Acts chapter 3, Peter addresses the man who was found lame outside of the temple. And maybe he's never been in the temple. All the people are walking into the temple while this man sits on the side of the road. And Peter stops and says to the man, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I will give you. Now get up and walk. This man walks into the temple leaping and praising God for what has been done. When Peter is arrested the first time of several that are recorded in the Gospels, he addresses the council that has forbidden him from speaking or teaching about Jesus. And he turns to them and he says, we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter is bold. Peter is outspoken. Peter is often quite a loudmouth. But God uses that with a little humility that Peter might have learned along the way. Peter will become who God has called him to be. Peter will use that same passion to proclaim with confidence that the Messiah has come, that God's kingdom has arrived here on earth. And just as we saw in the story of King David, God knew what God was doing, even with Peter. Although I imagine along the way God being quite frustrated with young Peter as he probably is with us. Last year, Suzanne and I got to go back to England for the first time that I had been home in a number of years. We flew into London Heathrow, and we had rented a car that we were going to drive to the hotel to rest overnight before we drove north to go visit my family. And so as we got into this car that I was not familiar with. I mean, generally speaking, when you rent a car, you spend a few minutes figuring out, you know, what all the bells and whistles are and and that kind of a thing, but also reminding myself to drive on the left and not on the right and prepare for roundabouts and these kinds of things. I mean, I had done that for several years growing up, but I just had to remind myself that, you know, things could be bad if I don't. And so we get out of the parking lot and we get onto the motorway, which is what they call their interstates, and this blessed car will not go any faster than 25 miles an hour. So imagine, if you will, when you leave here today, getting onto I-20 in whatever you're driving today, and that vehicle will not go faster than 25. Good luck. But that's where we were, right? So we're driving on the motorway. This car will not go any faster than 25. So I pulled over, and I'm like, I don't know what is going on with this car. Let's try it again. So I'll wait for traffic that's flying past us at 70, 70 miles an hour if they're doing the speed limit. We get back onto the motorway, and again, won't go any faster than 25 miles an hour. Let's pull over again. So at this time, we, we took the first exit that we could. Did I mention it was snowing? So we took the first exit that we could. We got off of the, the major road to try to figure out what's going on with this car. And finally, as I'm, I'm fumbling around and looking at stuff, and I'm quite frantic, as I don't think Suzanne's ever seen me quite that frantic. I mean, I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. So I pulled out my cell phone, like, well, let's, let's call the rental place and let's try to see if they can explain to us what's going on. Well, of course, we had no cell phone service at all. Couldn't call anybody, no Wi-Fi, couldn't even look on a map to know where we were. So here we are. And finally, as I'm looking at the dashboard, I see this, this in little letters on the dashboard, it says 25 max. What is 25 max? So logical thinking, right? I'm thinking, well, there's some goofy setting on this car 
that makes it not go any faster than 25 miles an hour. Like, I've never heard of such a thing, but that must be what that means. So I did what any reasonable person would do at this point. I just start pushing buttons. Like, I don't know, I've got nothing left. I'm just pushing every button I can find. And finally it goes off. I'm like, ooh, this is exciting. Maybe I can go faster than 25 now and we won't die. That'd be great. So we gave it a war. We got on the road, uh, finally, right, we can go faster than 25 and, and life was good, except at this point we're lost. <laughs> we have no idea where we are. We have no GPS. We have no map. We don't have a clue. There's construction, so we can't just turn around and get back on the road that we were on. So we stopped at a couple of gas stations or petrol stations as they are over there, asked some people, we're trying to get to this hotel. We've never heard of it. Where's that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's you know, back that way. Stopped at a couple of places, no luck. Finally, we found this hotel, and I pulled in, and I'm, you know, at this point, I'm probably just beat red and just exhausted. And the guy looked at me. He spent probably 20 minutes trying to explain to me how I get to where we need to be. He didn't know where the hotel was, but he knew vaguely what part of London it was in, and maybe from there we can figure it out. He was really nice. So I get back in the car, and I've got this sketch drawing that he's made for us. I'm like, well, let's give this a whirl. Finally, we get to somewhere that that I recognized and was familiar to me, and we found the hotel. But by this point, we had turned a 25, 30-minute drive from London Heathrow to our hotel into a two-hour expedition around central London, uh, including several toll roads that we were not aware of, so we got a bill in the mail uh, for those roads that we had gone down in central London because we were just going... I mean, we went over every bridge there is over the Thames in London, um, but not in the fun way, if, if that makes sense. It was a journey. We're going back later this year with the kids, so start praying now. Last week, I introduced us to the slave trader John Newton, a man who described himself as a great blasphemer, but who was later ordained as a priest in the Anglican Church. And as he prepared for a sermon on New Year's Day, 1773, he penned the words to Amazing Grace, words that we're very familiar with. And he took the question from King David that we talked about last week, the question that basically says, Who am I? Who am I? Always a good place to start. Which led him to the understanding that God's grace must be amazing if it can save even a wretch like him. And for John Newton, even that word, that word grace, invoked in him a reminder of all that God had done, all that God had promised, the activity of God's grace in his life, God's grace that found him, that saved him, that secured him for a life of joy and peace. Which is why he says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This turning point, as he called it, was aboard the slave ship, the Greyhound, as it traveled from Africa to Britain. And a violent storm came up and several people on board were killed, but he was spared. His conversion was far from immediate. It was long and it was painful, probably a 15, 20-year process. But finally, he was able to look back on his life. And he's quoted in his diary saying, Now I begin to understand the security of the covenant of grace. And I expect to be preserved, not by my own power and holiness, but by the mighty power and promise of God through faith in an unchangeable Savior. 
And in his mind, as he looked back over his life, his story is best told through the story of the prodigal son. This young man who takes his inheritance and he runs off and lives this extravagant wild lifestyle. The world at his feet. But finds himself hired out to feed the pigs. Eventually he turns around decides to go back home and ask for forgiveness where his father receives him with open arms. And it's recorded, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found, which of course became part of that first verse of Amazing Grace. Newton discovered that God's grace that sought after him, that found him, that restored him, a grace through which God met him, not with condemnation, but with open arms, with mercy, with acceptance. As it was with Peter. Peter who said, I don't even know the man who always focused on earthly things, what was in it for him and not heavenly things, ultimately denying even knowing who Christ was. But God's arms were wide open as Jesus restored him to the mission that he had for him from the beginning. You will go and fish for people. And as tradition have it, Peter did just that. He spent the rest of his life making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and gave his life doing so. Being lost can mean a whole lot of different things. It might mean driving to a place like Seymour, Missouri to stay at an Amish bed and breakfast. It might mean driving to a place like London and getting completely turned around and lost with a car that's acting stupid, with no map, no GPS. Or it might mean not recognizing God's activity in our lives. The work of the Holy Spirit that God searches for us wherever we may be. Whatever road we may have gone down, God follows us there. God meets us there. God chases after us and will stop at nothing to find us. And then God calls us and reminds us of the mission that he's put before us. As we recognize our humanness and his greatness. As we recognize that we all are lost until we find faith in Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for all that you do in each of our lives. That you search after us wherever we may go. That you find us wherever we are. And you restore us to the mission that you've put before us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on this place called your church. Work through us, work in us, and work in spite of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.